The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dov Greenberg now presents his lecture, How to Hack Time, Change Your Past, and Change Your Life. So what I want to try to do in our final session together is focus on two very special, their deep, counterintuitive approaches to time, which normally are never discussed. They come from our tradition, and they could be immensely helpful to daily living. I say they could be immensely helpful. It means if we work at it, but the ideas are very, very special, very moving. They're also philosophically very compelling. There's a book by a professor at MIT. It's a short book. It's an interesting book. It's kind of science fiction, but heavy on the science. The professor's name is Alan Lightman, a brilliant fellow. The book is called Einstein's Dreams. The, the summary of the book is this. His idea is that when Einstein was coming up and thinking about his theory of relativity, at night he would dream. And the thin book is about different dreams Einstein had at night where there's different conceptions of time. Different conceptions of time. So, for example, I'll give you one example of conception of time. In every chapter, he has this conception of time. Some of them are incredibly interesting or even mind-blowing. Like, what a creative idea. I never thought of time working that way. So, uh, for instance, would be he has a world in which time moves slower the higher you go. So the wealthy people live in higher places, on high hills, in high buildings. So the higher they are, the longer you live because time is moving slower for you. It's interesting. Cause now, when you go through the whole book, it's very interesting. It's not a long book. It's very interesting. It's an entertaining book with interesting ideas. But what struck me is the fact that he has a whole book of creative new conceptions of time, and he's missing the Jewish concept of time. The whole book doesn't have the Jewish concept of time. It was, it's not surprising because the Jewish concept of time is revolutionary. So we'll begin with that, this Jewish concept of time that's easy to miss. Parenthetically, Einstein said, he said, my whole life I've been trying to come to a Jewish event late. I never succeeded. <laughs> so I guess Hesh wasn't around, you know. So normally, how do we conceive of time? What, what's the structure of time? Normally, think about time. You say time is governed by past events. The past determines what happens today. And today will determine what happens tomorrow. It could be very nuanced with millions or billions of forces moving in that stream of time. But that's what time is. The markets tomorrow will be caused by what? by things that happened in the past. The weather today so governed by things that happened in the past. So that's the normal conception of time. The past brought us to today, and today will bring us to tomorrow. Often it's called a deterministic viewpoint. It's determined by past events. So now, interestingly, in Jewish life, Certainly, that is also true. Past events certainly affect our life and today and tomorrow. So certainly, that stream of time exists in the Jewish conception. But Judaism says, and adds to it something extraordinary, that time is not only pushed by the past, but it's pulled by the future. Use two simple words. Time is pushed or pulled. Any secular philosophy of history, time is pushed by the past. 
In Jewish thought, it's not only pushed by the past, but it's pulled by the future. And because it can be pulled, everything changes. Let me give you a, a beautiful, for instance, in the Talmud. The temple is destroyed. Devastation in Israel. Who here has been by the Kotel in Jerusalem? Raise their hand. This story happened right there, across the mountain that you see by the Kotel. This is where the story is. It says Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfin, Rabbi Eliezer, the great sages of the Talmud. After the temple was destroyed, the smoke was still rising. So it says they walked to that mountain, that you were all at that mountain. But this was the first time they encountered the devastation, the Holocaust. The smoke was rising. And, they, and these were Jewish leaders, great spiritual people. They broke down crying, sobbing. Rabbi Akiva, who was one of the greatest thinkers and leaders of the Talmud, mitzachek, he started to smile. He laughed. So his colleagues thought he lost his mind. They thought he had a breakdown. That's what they thought. So they turned to him. The Talmud records it for us. They returned to him. And they say, Rabbi Akiva, what's with you? This place that had the temple... The holies of holies that represented love and kindness and godliness. It was the splendor of our people in the world is now destroyed in ruins. The atamitzachik and you laugh. What's, what's going on? And they said one more thing. They said that look where the holies of holies once stood. They pointed to where the holies of holies was. And there were some wild foxes roaming around exactly where the holies. So imagine, imagine that devastation. Roaming around where the holies of holies. I said, how could you be? So Rabbi Akiva said, that's why I laugh. He said, what do you mean? He says, there's a verse in Jeremiah. There's a verse that says, a, a, a prophecy that was spoken about hundreds of years before this episode. Where Jeremiah said, if you guys, if the Jews don't change morally and ethically, then ultimately you're going to be expelled from the land and you're going to lose the temple. The temple will be destroyed. Says that clearly. Over a hundred years prior. And he also says in that prophecy that Shualim Holchubai, wild foxes, are going to roam on the temple mount. That's right there. You can read it in the verse. Shualim Holchubai. So Rabbi Akiva said, Kol Yamai, my whole life, I wondered, I thought about. Those prophetic words, that nightmare, that the temple would be destroyed and foxes, an animal, will roam in the holies of holies. Was that hyperbole? Was that poetic license? I understand the prophet means devastation is going to happen. But does it really mean that wild animals are going to prance around the holiest space in Jewish life? Does it really mean that literally? So Rabbi Kiva says, today I see that the words of the prophet are unerringly accurate. There's no poetic license. Literally, I see foxes coming out of that space. So he says, that's why I smile. That's why I laugh. Because the prophets also gave us another promise. They said the day will come where men and women and children will be in the, will be in the streets of Yerushalayim. They'll be celebrating. They'll be laughing. There'll be echoes of joy and laughter and hope in Jerusalem. He says, now I know that is not some poetic license. It's going to happen. Jews are going to come back to this place and the city is going to be echoing with only laughter across the generations. By the way, most of you experienced that yourselves in Jerusalem. When you were in Jerusalem, you didn't experience fox, maybe cats, but, uh, but, but it was with ice cream and joy and celebration, something very special. So he says, that's why I find joy. Because a promise of the future. So friends, do you see what's happening? Rabbi Akiva's colleagues were very realistic and they said according to history, and, and if we look at it in terms of the past governs the future, and the past is what matters, this is unmitigated disaster. You don't recover from this. And they were stuck in the tragedy of the moment, which was very real. But what Rabbi Akiva said is you don't understand Jewish history. When I look at the destruction now, I know that this is not the end because we are being pulled into a future by a promise of the future. There's a future that says Jerusalem will be rebuilt, so we are going to get there. How? Because we're being 
upholds by a promise of the future. Because a prophet in the name of God said the city is going to be rebuilt and everyone in this room experienced that promise. So now you have a whole new conception of history. What governs my day is two things. It's what happened in the past, but then there's a promise of the future which changes everything because now there's optimism, there's hope. There's a whole other engine of history pu pulling us forward. There was a, a, a cartoon. I used to leave, you know, leave school and watch this cartoon on Sundays from time to time. It's called Wiley Coyote. People are familiar with Wiley Coyote here? Not so many. Most? Yes? Yes. So Wiley Coyote, the coyote was uh, always trying to what? To chase the, the bird and make a meal out of it with a bracha, without a bracha, but he would try to eat it. It was kosher, by the way. Yeah, it's kosher, uh, but fine. So he would, in one episode, the coyote's chasing the roadrunner. He's chasing the bird, and the bird uh, runs, runs, and he runs off a cliff. And he keeps on running, fast. He's speeding. And the coyote stands at the end, at the precipice, and he realizes that this bird's gonna, it's not gonna end well for him. And the bird's running, the flying gravity. And then, after 20 seconds of it, the bird suddenly looks down. He screeches to us and looks down. When he looks down, his face changes. He's like, oh no, I'm in trouble. And then he falls all the way to his death. But he's resurrected again with Tom and Jerry and others, things. But uh, he missed it. So, but here's the simple question. Why did the roadrunner fall and die? Why? Why? Yeah. He, he was able to run on thin air. He, gravity was, wasn't, uh, didn't really affect him so much. What affected, his, what affected him was when he said, oh, gravity affects me. Oh, I'm governed by deterministic forces that need to destroy my life. Oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, okay, if you live that way, you fall. That's how the Jewish people live. That's what Rabbi Akiva was saying. He says, no, we can keep on running. The Jewish people have done that. They said, we could overcome challenge. We're not determined by past events, nationally or individually. We can literally break rules of nature. Why? Because we're not governed by a deterministic viewpoint or looking down or backwards, but with a vision of the future. We march towards that. Viktor Frankl, in one of his books, it's not in Man's Search for Meaning, it's a different book that he wrote, he has many books. Viktor Frankl's famous, one of the famous writers of the 20th century, he survived Auschwitz, he's a Jewish fellow, and he created a whole new school in psychology and therapy, logotherapy, very powerful stuff. So, he has an episode about his life that beautifully captures this Jewish concept of time and how helpful it is on a personal level. So listen to this. This is what he writes. He says, one day towards the end of, before liberation, towards the end, he was weak, he was sick, he had pneumonia and who else knows what. He had no more strength left, no food, no clothing, got ripped, cold pajamas, no socks. He was walking on this march to some workplace. He says... He fell. It was snowing. He fell. No strength. No normal clothing. Horrible cough. He couldn't breathe. He says the Nazi officer walks by and starts beating him. He says, if you don't get up, we shoot you. And he said, he has witnessed many times, they had no compunction about shooting somebody who fell. So either you were shot or you just froze to death in two minutes. He said, I started to cough. I couldn't get up. I did not have the energy to get up. Now, he was, Frankel originally shared this story in a, towards the end of his life, he shared it in Anaheim, California, where there was a big convention of therapists and psychologists, he shared it, it was, you know, about 7,000 people in Anaheim, California, he gave a speech, he shared the story in the speech. So he's telling them he was on the floor, coughing, can't get up. He says, then in my mind, I started to think about the future. Listen to this. He said, I started to think about the future. He said, I started to think that I survived the camps. I regained my strength. And then I came up with a philosophy 
in terms of psychology of how to help people who are struggling in life based on my experiences in the camp. How come some people were able to endure and some not? And he says, I developed in my mind, he says, I'm thinking that I developed a whole concept of that. You ha if you have a meaning and you have purpose, it gives you physical energy. If you have purpose, if you have meaning, if you have optimism about the future, it gives you. So he says, I'm thinking about this quickly as I'm on the floor. He says, then, as I'm on the floor there, I'm thinking that I'm giving a speech and I'm recounting the story of how once I fell and was being beaten and almost was killed. And then he says, I thought that I can get up. He says, well, I was thinking that in the speech I'm going to tell them that I got up, I regained my strength, and I walked back to the barrack and I lived to see another day. And he says, as I was thinking about what I was going to say in the speech, I actually had the energy and I got up. You're following? It's a bit of a trippy story. In that room, when he finished the speech, that's what happened. The whole room stood up and gave him a standing ovation. It was about 50 years later. But everybody stood up and, because that's exactly what his life was. But you see, so how did Frankel survive? Not by what he's experiencing at the moment. What, what he was experiencing in the moment would have killed him, and it was very real. He conceived of a future, and the future pulled him forward to live and to see another beautiful, powerful day. So that's what Jewish people have always done. It's a very powerful idea. You see it in the texts of our tradition all the time. How do we finish the Passover service? What are the last words we say? Next year we're Yerushalayim, future. Now Jews said that in ghettos, and persecution, and horrible times. But what did we say? We didn't say oive. We didn't say, uh, we said next year in Jerusalem. How do we culminate Yom Kippur? With what line? Next year in Jerusalem. Jews have always said we can, there's a promise to the future and now we need to work to make that promise happen. So it's true nationally and it's true individually. You, you see it very beautifully in a family. Anybody who has, who has children or grandchildren or even spiritual children, it's a beautiful story. It's a story we all know, but we often don't focus on this one point. You have three of the greatest Jewish leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, all prophets and great leaders. It's one family, three great leaders. What was the parenting secret? What did their parents do? Because you barely ever have that in history or in Jewish history. Did any of the founding fathers and mothers of the Jewish people have all three children, all, all great leaders? No. Abraham didn't have it. Sarah didn't have it. Isaac, Rebecca, they didn't have that. Very rare. Look at all, in all the books of the prophets, it's very rare to find that. So parents, what, what did they do? If you look into the Torah, it doesn't tell us what the parents did. It almost tells us nothing about their parents. But it tells us one thing very clearly, and it repeats it a few times. So it gives us a good insight into what, what message they instilled in their children. It talks to us. Know what it tells us? It only tells us their names. The, the father of Moses and Aaron and Miriam, his name was Amram, exalted nation. Amram, exalted nation. So imagine they had this child, his parents, Amram, Moses' parent, father, was born in a dark time of Jewish history. Okay, imagine some kind of maybe secret circumcision uh, ceremony during the oppression when they would kill Jewish children. And they said, and what is this child's name? You all were out of bris, right? They say, and what's the child's name? They say, Amram, exalted nation. Imagine a lot of the realistic people at the ceremony said, are you crazy, exalted? We're slaves, we're battered, we're beaten, we're abused. What, what a pipe dream, exalted nation. We've been crushed for a hundred years already. There's no end in sight. Exalted. So what did his father? His father must have said, hey, you have to have faith. You have to have, we're going to be an exalted nation. There's a promise. Of course we're going to live to see it. We're already it now. We have to live now in Egypt as an exalted nation. And their mother's name was Yocheved, means glory to God. I imagine, again, they had a ceremony and they said, what's the daughter's name? Glory to God. Glory to God. He allows this to happen to us. What kind of glory? What kind of glory? It's horrible. Be realistic. So the only thing we know about the parents of Moses and Aaron and Miriam is both of their names were given to them by a family, by parents who were not deterred by the pain 
or the catastrophe of the moment, but they were people that were rooted in a Jewish promise of the future, and they must have infused that in their life, in their home, and in their children. And so now you see three of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people that emerge in the darkest time of our people come from families where it must have been completely submerged with optimism, with hope, with the promise of the future to rise. And they grew to live that and to instill it into a nation. He agrees, or she agrees. So, in personal life, it's a very optimistic kind of perspective, both for, for Jewish history and as in personal life. But here we're going to come to something that's going to take it a step further and could be incredibly helpful for mistakes that we've made and difficult things we're going through. And I'll preface it this way. This is actually true. It's strange, but it's true. One of the great parties that people have is a New Year's party. In the secular world, New Year's parties are big. So what happens if you want to experience not just one party, but a few parties? Somebody actually thought this up, a startup in Silicon Valley. What happens if somebody wants to be at two great parties, New Year's parties? So listen to this. You could be in Sydney, Australia, and celebrate 20... I'm going to tell you, this is, uh, if somebody wants to do this, this is how you do it. You can be in Sydney, Australia, New Year's 2023. You celebrate a great party in Sydney. Sydney has great parties. Now, somebody in Silicon Valley came up with this hack. They have private, beautiful Gulf Stream planes that they fly on New Year's from Sydney to where? To California. What's the time difference between Sydney and California? 19 hours. 19-hour difference behind. California's 19 hours behind. So if I can have a plane that I can fly 10 hours, 13 hours of flights, 13-hour flight from Sydney to California, I take off 2023, and I travel back in time. I land 2022. I go from January to December, and I party six. I relive six hours of my life in great party. You can do it, by the way. This is real. This really does exist. So if this didn't quite do it for you. <laughs> they could. So you can relive six hours of your life. The flight now is about 13 hours. You can relive six hours of your life. Don't we all want to do that? Don't we all want to relive six hours of our life? I don't mean two parties. That's not bad. But don't we wish we could go back in time and change something we did, something we said we wish we could take back? Don't we wish we can go back and maybe do something that we wish we would have done but didn't do? Who doesn't have moments or hours or days? I don't want to say years, but it could be. <laughs> Who doesn't have moments that we wish? If only I can go back in time and change the past, right? That's not, you can't. So what, I, what is extraordinary is that Judaism says, and, and I'll, I'll try to illustrate this philosophy, how practical it is, that we actually could do it. That we can go back and change the past. We can relive hours of our life over again. Change the meaning of the past. So you say, how is that possible? How on earth can I change the meaning of the past? So the best way to illustrate this Jewish concept is with something we do every day. You did it today. In a simple construct of a sentence. Okay? Here's a sentence. Watch the sentence. I love you. Right? That was a sentence. Now, if I say I love you, and I say I... And then I say the word love. The word love changes the meaning of the word I. Because when I said I, I could have said I hate you. It's not nice. But if I say I hate you, what is the I? The I is a hating I. If I say I love, what is the I? What is it? It's a loving I. How did you know what the meaning of the I was? You needed to wait till later to redefine the earlier, the prior. Now if I say, watch this, I say, I love chocolate. 
It's not even about you anymore. It's about me. I don't care about you. It's about my dessert. So chocolate now changes the meaning of the word I and love. It's about my chocolate. So hold on. In a sentence, what comes later moves back and changes what came prior. What Judaism says is we can do that to our actions in life. We could change what we actually did because the future, what I do today, if I'm mindful about it, could change the meaning of what I did yesterday. And the future is, time can't control that, only a human being could. In other words, the content and the meaning of what I did yesterday or last year changes based on what I decide to do today. Two illustrations. I think it was not about 1980, a tragedy happened to a family. A young 13-year-old girl, her name was Carrie, she was tragically hit by a drunken driver. She was 13. Her life ended. Great tragedy. Horrible. Her mother was devastated and depressed for some time. And then one morning she woke up and she said, right now the meaning of my child's life, I don't understand what happened. Why did God allow it to happen? Who knows? She said, but one thing I do know is the meaning of my daughter's life is just one big tragedy. A short life cut short in a horrible way. That's her life. By some senseless, meaningless, horrible accident. Some sugar and a drunk driver. Horrible. She said, I don't want that to be the story of my daughter's life. I'm going to change it. She started to say, I need to create awareness of drunk driving, of the harm it causes in society, on the roads, about the families that are ripped apart because of it. And she created this organization called what? Who knows? Mothers for Rights. And she created this organization that brought awareness to America, then to the rest of the world, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, about the horrors of it. And today, all the years, years later, it's estimated that her organization literally saved almost one million lives, statistically, a million lives. The roads in America are different. All the roads, it's not perfect, but they're completely different because Carrie, because Candace, the mother, decided that I'm going to change the world. I'm going to bring a better life to many people. I'm going to change the people's future because of the short life my daughter had. So now, us in this room, the tragedy is the tragedy. We're not saying we understand, and we're not saying a tragedy is not a tragedy. That, But we're saying something very different. Anybody in this room ever asked, what is the meaning to Carrie's life? Would we define it as a senseless tragedy and then it was over? The meaning of her life is that she saved hundreds and thousands of lives. That's the meaning of her life. What, a, what, a un, what an unbelievable legacy. What an She changed the future of driving in America. So, the day the tragedy happened from history alone, from the way time moves itself, we don't know what happened. It just, you get... Nothing changes. It's, it remains a tragedy. Only a human being with a soul could say, I'm going to go back and change the meaning of her life based on actions I do today, and it's going to redefine the meaning of something prior. That's not guaranteed. That comes from free choice. But we can do that with any of the mistakes we made. That's the great promise of repentance and renewal in Jewish thoughts. That's where it comes from. It's not simply that, oh, God forgives you. It's much deeper than that. It's, you could say, one second. I can, based, a, a, a debt that I have could turn into a credit. That a debt is now an asset. So how does a debt become an asset? The Talmud has a beautiful story about this. One of the great revolutionary statements on this topic in the Talmud is, Rabbi Shlokesh was a, a sage. And in early life, he was a bandit and a criminal and a gladiator. So he's a great sage. Later in life. But the first part of his life, he was a crook. He was a bandit. He was a vicious person. One day he repented. Interesting story. He changed his life. Okay, he repented. But he still, still had a few decades of horror. So now he's one of the great Talmudic thinkers. He's quoted in the Talmud. He's, he's influential in Jewish law. But he had a very colorful beginning. So the Talmud says a few stories. I'll share one story. The Talmud says one day... The Romans captured a Jewish girl who was very beautiful, and they were bringing her to Rome 
in a house of ill repute. So people came into the academy where the sages were studying, and they said, this girl was kidnapped. She's being brought to Rome. So what, what did, guess what the sages did? I don't, they started to pray. What are they going to do? Give charity, pray, make a minion. What are they? Okay, it's very nice. It's a good response. Rishlokas was in that room. He said, really? He went back home to the skeletons in his closet. It seems he, he, he had some of his uh, weapons. And he went, he hunted down, he chased this. And he took them on and he vanquished them. The Talmud doesn't give us the details. The one thing the Talmud says is that they, they were all swept away and the girl came back and she wasn't touched. It's a powerful story. The only reason Rishlakish was able to do that was because he was, uh, he, he was so great because he was so bad. Only because of his colored, vicious past was he able to save the girl and change her life. The Talmud says the story with great praise, with great admiration. So now, if you had a video and you see Rish Lakish working out, you know, eating Wheaties, doing push-ups and with his swords and bow and arrows and practicing to be a great thief and to pillage and attack, you say, oh, this is a vicious fellow. But now, after he saves that girl, what was the meaning of his exercise a decade earlier? What was it? Was it unholy, horrible, selfish? <laughs> One second. He now changed his exercise routine 20 years ago. The meaning just changed. Now it's pretty holy. There's other stories. Not the only story in the Talmud. By the way, Rash Lakish is the one in the Talmud who says, I'll tell you in Hebrew, it's a beautiful line. Tshuva, repentance is so great. It's the greatest thing. Sins become merits. Corruption becomes holy. So normally you say, how is that possible? That His story tells you how it's possible. So when we look back at our life, let's take two of the concepts of Jewish time and put them together. First of all, as a Jewish person, as a nation we're part of, and individually, to be optimistic about the future. Always to be optimistic about... We're, we're governed as a people by a promise of the future. There's a great God who's our partner in what we do. That's a, an extraordinary kind of uplift in life. It's a cause for optimism. But then you say, that's very nice, but look at this bad month, bad here day I had, or bad decade. It was a bad decade. The 80s, you know, or whatever it was. Okay? So just like in a sentence you say, I love chocolate, it redefines, the chocolate redefines the I and the love. So today, based on a mistake I made a week ago or a year ago, I could change it. You change it. I change it because now that's going to inspire me to do something else. I could, you don't know for sure, but I'll have the chutzpah to say, I imagine part of, I don't know if I should say it, but it's too late because I started, right? Imagine when they came in, they said, oh, this girl was just kidnapped by the Romans. I got to think for a moment, I'm sure Rishlakish was uh, upset about it, but for, I'm sure there was a moment there where he said, oh, this is, an, this is an opportunity for me to redeploy, you know, some energies I deployed in a bad way, in a positive way. So that's something we can do. Whatever the mistake was, we have to be creative about it. But one thing we cannot do is say, oh, look what I messed up. Look at the harm I caused. Oh, poor me. Stupid. Foolish. That's not the way time works. That's not the way God set up the structure of reality. It's a, the conception is completely wrong. Just like you can fly and have two... Just like you can fly today and have two New Year's parties, somebody can, says it can't be done. Of course it could be done. Of course it could be done. It could be done psychologically and spiritually and morally. And then we change history. We change our families. We change our... There was a king, who had, he had a friend. The friend was always positive and optimistic. He was on a hunting trip. The king has his rifle, he's taking a shot at some. And somebody loaded his rifle wrong. And the bullet fires, but it's incorrectly loaded. And part of his pinky gets blown off, the king's pinky. His optimistic friend looks and he said, oh, this is for the good. It's going to be good. Gonna... The king was an outrage. You know, this is a, too, a bridge too far. You want to be optimistic about the weather? That's fine. But I just lost part of my pinky? Nah. Tells his guards, throw this guy into prison. This is, it was his good friend, but enough. Fine. He's, his friend's rotting in prison. Seven months later, the king's healed. He's hunting again. He loved hunting. He's hunting again. He's chasing some animal and he loses his company and his ministers, he's alone. 
Suddenly he's surrounded by cannibals. They capture him, they tie him up. They put him over a big fire. Then one of the people are looking, one of the cannibals, and they realize that the king has a missing part of his pinky. Now there's a halacha, there's a law in cannibalism that you have, the person has to be perfect. It's part of that. Can't have a blemish. This was their law and their code of the Jewish law, the cannibal law. And their shulchanah. So they went to the chief. They said, look here, we have this great dinner ready to go. It's about the, but there's a, he has missing part of his pinky. He says, you got to let him go. You got to let him go. This is the law. Kosher is kosher. So they let him go. The king's galloping back toward his palace, and he realizes, oh my goodness, my friend was right. My friend that's been rotting in the prison was right all along. He says it was for the best, and it was for the best. If I didn't fire the rifle, and I didn't lose a little piece of my pinky, I would have been dinner right now. I would be the main course. So he rushes back to the prison, and he has the guards release him. He says, my dear friend, I'm sorry for what I did to you. I put you in prison. It was horrible. You must forgive me. And the friend says, no, it was for the best. It was wonderful. He says, what do you mean it was wonderful? You were suffering for months. He says, if you wouldn't put me in prison, I would have been with you on your new hunting trip and they would have ate me for dinner. <laughs> so we have to have the wisdom to realize that time works in interesting ways. That sometimes a future event changes the meaning of the past and it can be very joyous, even though originally it wasn't so pleasant. But not to be stuck in this linear, deterministic kind of perspective. I read an article. Now this is something that it's a different kind of language. It's a sensitive topic, so, but it needs to be said. Because normally, we don't view it this way. But it's a Jewish truth. It was, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was about philanthropy in America and the great achievement that Jews are accomplishing with their giving and their generosity in terms of secular America, hospitals, libraries, science, and also Jewish people involved in Jewish causes, the tremendous things that they do. So they interviewed one fellow who was a wealthy Jewish person, Wall Street Journal. It was about philanthropy. That was the article. It wasn't a Jewish article. It was about, but it was about Jewish people and philanthropy. So they interviewed one Jewish fellow. He didn't grow up with any Jewish education or Jewish background. He was completely secular, profoundly secular. He said, what changed? What changed his life? And the Wall Street Journal wrote it very shortly. I remember it because it was a very potent story. He said he went to Israel. He went to Israel. He went to the Holocaust Museum in Israel, Yad Vashem. He said there was an exhibit at the time of Hanukkah in Auschwitz. He said the exhibit was a dark, small exhibit. He said, up until this point, he didn't have, a, he wasn't involved with the Holocaust so much or anything of that nature. He said, but this exhibit really shook him up to the core. It was the clothing of a few inmates in this small glass kind of room, a small makeshift menorah, and some other articles of clothing. With a few of the lights, you can still see like some of the oil gelled over. And the story of the exhibit was that there were a few inmates who came together one of the nights of Hanukkah, who risked their life because you couldn't leave your barrack after the curfew time. You couldn't light menorah. They somehow, with weeks prior, created a little menorah. They sneak out of the barrack. They have this little hiding place. They light the menorah. And they were caught by an SS officer. They were caught. And they were immediately all killed. So this was, their this was the exact menorah and the closing and the articles left. It was the only thing left of them. Their we don't know their names. We don't know who. So nothing was known, but in this box was that they were able to capture the last moments of their life, you know, the menorah experience. He said he couldn't sleep that night. For some reason, that just haunted him. This, he's a husband, a brother, a son, a father, wiped out, just ended the menorah. It's he said, I decided, it bothered him so much. He was a person who was very ambitious in business, and whenever he had a setback in business, so whenever a competitor would, he would, it would spark deep, I don't know, demons or great ambition in him, and he would fight back in business very, very strongly. That was a deep motivating factor in his life was that. 
He said, seeing the menorah and those lives snuffed out in, in such a visceral way, it had hit me so deeply, I decided I'm not going to let the Nazis have this victory. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change this. So he said that Shabbat, when he came home, he knew the Jewish tradition, you light Shabbat candles. He asked his wife, he said, could we as a family light Shabbos candles? Because I, I, what I want to try to do is I want to rekindle the light of the menorah that the Nazis put out. Could we recreate that light? Let's not let it be snuffed out. So my people were very touched. They said, okay, let's do it. So that was our first Shabbos. That changed our life. He said, then that Hanukkah was a different Hanukkah. And, our Jew and it was animated by what? That we're going to change the meaning of what happened to those people. Up for 60 years, the meaning of their life was that the Nazis killed them and they were Jewish victims. And end of story. And that was history. But a human being could go back 50 years and say, I'm going to change the meaning of that room, of that Hanukkah experience. I'm going to change the meaning of the Holocaust. It's going to mean something completely different. Why? Because now there's a new Jewish family engaged Jewishly, building, Jewish, building a Jewish future. So to say, oh, the Holocaust happened. A horrible thing happened. And that's, it's frozen in history is incorrect. In this room right now, every single one of us is capable of changing the meaning of the Holocaust. The horror was the horror. That we cannot change, but the meaning of it we can change by kindling another candle, by doing that which one... So you say, this person's life was snuffed out, and because of it, now we're changing the Jewish future because the meaning of somebody's life changes. That's powerful stuff. So it's true as a nation, it's true as individuals, the power we have, the optimism we have. You can see this, this whole idea, in the way our tradition recounts all of history. So this is something you all know of, of the text, but it's so beautiful how it's recorded in our tradition. That's very easy to miss. If you want to understand a nation or a people, how they think, how their emotions operate, know what you need to do? Just look at the way they tell their stories. For example, you'll never find a Jewish story that ends happily ever after. If ever happily ever, it's not a Jewish story. In other words, as long as we, one day, but it's, if we're in the world that's not redeemed, if the world isn't the way it ought to be, so we still have, it's not a, we still have it, we're still on our journey. So, another way to tell, tell it, you want to understand the people or a culture, you look at the words that they can't, you can't translate. Have you noticed that certain words don't translate well? That tells you that a certain culture has something that they did in Israel. There was a convention. There was a convention in Israel for academics from around the world. So the, uh, one of the panels was about Judaism and civility. That was in English. The title was Civility. And they had professors from America coming. And they had a big problem in Hebrew because they were searching for a word in Hebrew to match civility, but there is none. There's no word. How do you say civility? They came up with some, you know, derech eretz, which means, you know, beha behaving, or, you know. But it's not. How, how do you say chutzpah in English? How do you say chutzpah in English? No, chutzpah. You can't say it in English. No, you do. That's it. But if you Google chutzpah, it will come up. So we have a chutzpah we have, but civility we don't have. But you have that. <laughs> so you can see words that you can translate, words that you can't translate. Tell us a lot. But how, how do we tell a story? I'm going to quote three books that you all know, but point out a small thing, but how important it is. Watch how Jews tell our story. The book of Genesis, you all know the book of Genesis, the great creation story. In the beginning, God created. So it begins with creation, Adam and Eve, you all know. Then the founding of the Jewish people, Abraham and Sarah and the tribes of Israel. Beautiful. You're all, you all know the story. How does the book end? You all know how the book ends. It ends with Joseph being sold into slavery and all the Jews end up where? In Egypt. You all know the story. You celebrate it on Passover. The book of Genesis ends with about... 200 years plus of slavery and oppression and slow genocide all beginning. It's the beginning of the enslavement of our nation. It culminates in the Passover story. But Genesis ends. You're all with me? You all know this? Say yes. 
You're good. Okay. You know what the last words of the book of Genesis are? They should be oy vey. That's what they should be. Because that's what's happening. Know how it ends? Listen closely. Here's the last verse. Joseph is dying. He calls the tribes of Israel. The slavery is about to start. He says, I want to tell you something. Slavery is going to end. This is the last verse, the last lines of Genesis. Slavery is going to end. You know why? Because God's going to remember his promise of the future. And therefore, take me out of this Egypt. Bury me in Israel. If you go to Israel, Joseph's in Israel. How did he get to Israel? Because Jews kept the promise. The last words of Genesis are there's a promise of the future. God is going to remember you. He's going to hear your cry. He's going to take you out of here. Take me along with you. So the book should end in Oive, but it doesn't. It ends with, there's a promise of your future. Don't despair. Now, if you want to change all of Jewish history, you know what you need to do? Only one thing. You don't need to add one verse. You just need to get rid of one verse and put it in one book later. End with, and Joseph dies and buried in Egypt. Now the book ends in tragedy. And you start one verse later. A new king arose who didn't know the Jewish people and he enslaved them. You just end the book with one verse later, which kind of, if you're right, probably good editors would have done that. Now, the book started with creation and ended in slavery and tragedy. But Jews don't write stories that way because it's not true. Because if only the past determines the future, then you write a book that way. But to be a Jew is to know that even though we're about to enter 200 years of tragedy, we're going through a dark time in life, there's a promise of the future, and that's going to govern our behavior. And it's going to govern how we name our children. It's going to govern what message we infuse in our home and how we view life and how we understand that even bad things could be turned, their meaning could be changed, so somebody could be a gladiator and they could become a gewaldik the great hero, Rishlakesh. It's a different kind of philosophy. How does the last book of the five books of Moses end? Again, you all know, Deuteronomy. The Jews are traveling in the desert. You all know this. In the, the end of the five books of Moses, they've been traveling for five books. Did they make it into the promised land? No. Does Moses make it into the promised land? No. Moses dies and the Jews don't get in. So what is the last verses of the five books of Moses? Moses goes up onto the mountain. Could he... He said, I see the land, I can't get into it. So we've been traveling for 40 years. There was a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. This is the great promise. It's ending in what? In disaster. A dream unfulfilled. So you would think the book ends with, okay, we're all stuck. Tragedy. Moses climbs up onto the mountain and God says, you're not going to go there, but there's a promise, I promise. There's a promised land and all the Jews are going to make it into that land of promise. So the promise of the future... That's how the book ends. And then finally, the last book of the Torah, Divrei Hayamim, it's the last book of the prophets, the 24 books. The Jews are all in Persia, in exile. And the last verse of the last words of the last in the Torah is, the king of Persia calls the Jewish people and says, I had a vision about God of your ancestors, and I'm committing myself to any of the Jews that want to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He says, I'm going to be a partner. I'm going to be a sponsoring partner. And I'm here to help fulfill the promise that God gave your ancestors. Whoever wants that promise is going to be fulfilled, go back to Israel. So our book, again, ends with that great promise of the future. So here you have it, to be a Jew. And that's how we write our story. You simply could change all of Jewish history by not ending on those promises. But it's giving us a mindset, a perspective of how we view history, how we view ourselves. I'm going to conclude with this powerful episode that brings it together. In the 1930s, Ben-Gurion was representing the Jewish people in Israel, trying to create the reborn state of Israel, trying to give some place for the Jews there were 700,000 Jews living in Israel at the time, a lot of them Holocaust survivors. That, that was a bit later on, right after the Holocaust. These are people who managed to escape, so they had a few hundred thousand at the time. In the 40s, it was already a few hundred thousand, almost a million. So you had Ben-Gurion in front of the, was what became the United Nations, trying to say, give the Jews some land that we could control. So one place on earth that we can run to. At that time already, the world was closed to the Jews. 
So he gets up in front of this commission, and this is what he tells them. He tells them, a few, a few hundred years ago, there was a ship called the Mayflower. It left from England. It landed on Plymouth Rock. On the commission were mostly the influential people were England and America. He says it landed on Plymouth Rock. Came from England. Did the, did the delegates here from England know what, what day the ship set sail? It changed the history of, of your country. Do you know? It's quiet. He waited. It was quiet in the room. He says, do, do you know what they ate on that ship? Do you know what, what was the menu on that ship? It's quiet. They look at him like you're in a sugar. How are we supposed to know? Then he turns to the American delegation. He says, the ship landed, the Mayflower, it lands in Plymouth Rock. Do you know what day it landed? It's quiet. Do you know what they ate? It's quiet. Do you know who the captain was on the ship? He says, I want to tell you something. He says, 3,000 years before the Mayflower, the Jews left Egypt. 3,000 years before your Mayflower. Our nation, anywhere, ask any Jew anywhere in the world, he started to say, in Palestine, in Chicago, in New York, ask any Jew what date they left. And they're going to tell you, oh, Passover, Nisan, the 14th of Nisan, in the middle of Nisan, that's when they left 3,000 years ago. That's the day. We know the day. And you ask any Jew, do you know the menu that they ate? And every Jew will tell you, I know we know exactly. Well, it wasn't the best recipe, you know. We've been suffering for thousands of years. Next time we should leave with shawarma or something, pizza, but uh, the next escape. But ask any Jew, they'll tell you the nature of the food. You ask any Jew, who are the leaders? They'll tell you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. He said, we've been traveling to the promised land, to this country, 3,000 years, it was a, had a very dramatic impact. He's talking to these people. He said, this is our land. He vividly brought it. He says, and I want to tell you something else. And everybody was listening very closely. Remember, he wasn't a religious Jew. He, wasn't, uh, he says, every year, every Jew, wherever they are, celebrates the exodus moving towards our promised land. Been trying to get back there for 2,000 years. He says, ask every Jew, you know what we say at the night of the conclusion of that meal? You know what every Jew says? Ask any Jew, they'll tell you. Next year in Jerusalem, we're waiting, we're yearning to fulfill that promise. This is our land. This is our promised land. Every Jew knows it. And then he concluded, Kach tiva shel amzu. This is the nature of our people. This is our nature. And he got it right. That's the Jewish nature. The nature is that we know that a promise governs our future. So it's very optimistic. And we know that in our own personal life that what we decide to do today could change the meaning of what happened yesterday in our life. And when we live that way, it brings a certain optimism and hope. We can travel back in time. And when we can travel back in time, we may build a beautiful future for ourselves and the world. Amen. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.